going on, everybody? Welcome back to Marsh Talk. We got a new episode here today. Uh, today's guest, we have somebody who has their podcast of their own. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it. I've learned a lot. Um, he is the advocacy director for CCA Texas, Shane Beno. What's going on, man? Hey, Josh. Hey, not a whole lot. Thanks for having me on this evening. Glad to be here. Oh, absolutely. It's my honor to have you on. Um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I've learned a lot specifically about Flounder. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, Shane Beno, uh, work for CCA Texas. I do advocacy work for the, the Texas chapter. And so I'm uh, doing a lot with fisheries policy, working um, anything to do with that, that touches the bay and, and the species that, that we care about in our bay systems. I do a little bit with Gulf fisheries as well, uh, Gulf council meetings, but most of my focus is, is in Austin, um, uh, through, through policy making. And before I came to CCA, I was worked for parks and wildlife department in here in the state of Texas. And I managed, uh, for five years, I was a hatchery manager and five years before that hatchery biologist at sea center, Texas, which is here where I live in Lake Jackson. And that's a redfish trout and flounder hatchery. And, um, so yeah, I've been dealing with, with fisheries issues for quite a while, have a, some experience in oysters, um, managed an oyster hatchery while my wife and I lived in Virginia for a few years. So I've been on a couple of different coasts doing, a, doing a few different things. Um, so yeah, I work with CCA now and enjoying it. I get to get to go up and down the coast and advocate for conservation and talk about fishing. So it's a pretty good, pretty good gig. Absolutely. How uh, how did how did you get involved with with wanting to advocate for for uh, conservation? Man, that kind of came to me actually. Uh, I was as I mentioned, I was manager at, at Sea Center and got to know the people that work for CCA Texas, and they they reached out to me a couple of times actually, and and with with a opportunity to to work for them. And, um, you know, the first time it did, didn't seem like it was going to be a good fit in my life at the time. Um, mm-hmm. but second time they reached out, it was a little bit different a position. The one that I have now, it was one that they, a new one they created. Uh, they, they did not have this position before, but they said, Hey, we got this new idea. Want to see if you'd be interested in, in becoming our advocacy director. So yeah, it just, it just came to me, but I, I think it was just a result of my, um, my passion for the fisheries mm-hmm. uh, that that I expressed to them through my work at at Sea Center because um, we the CCA Texas supports uh, heavily supports the hatchery program on on the coast and so we get to know those guys quite well and uh, we yeah we just worked worked well together and they they uh, offered me a job so I was very fortunate very unusual and uh, very blessed to to have this opportunity absolutely. So you're working at um, this hatchery. Um, it's complete transparency. I know very little about hatcheries. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah, so um, Texas has inland and coastal uh, hatcheries, and we we have three on the coast dedicated to just saltwater stock enhancement. Um, one of them is is quite old. Was I think it's built in the 30s, and it's no longer functioning as a hatchery is actually a uh, it's a fisheries research station, but they have ponds where they can grow out fingerlings. So that one is in Palacios. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the hatcheries themselves, one is in Corpus Christi and and one is here in Lake Jackson, and both of those locations have broodstock where they spawn the fish. Um, they have the larval rearing capabilities to take those eggs and then hatch them out nurture them for a few days. And then they have the pond facilities, much like they do in flashes where they can grow those fingerlings out to, uh, to the size to where they want to want to release them. So in Texas, they release about 25 million, um, spotted sea trout and red drum combined total Mm -hmm. in our, in our state waters, in our public waters. And typically they're about an inch and a half long. Um, okay. And so, yeah, we, we basically support enhancing the fisheries through stocking of, of fingerlings, something that Texas has been doing since 1983, actually. 
Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, just 41 years of, of putting fingerlings into the base systems. And I think this summer they're on track to release their one billionth fingerling in Texas waters. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, is this something that you feel like just makes the overall health of an estuary uh, better? Do you feel like uh, this helps maybe in creating like a, a trophy fish um, estuary? Well, it certainly, it, it, it can help. It just, it really depends on the conditions that you're putting them into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got to have good habitat for them to recruit to. So right. you have to put them in a place where the, where the, Small fingerlings have a place uh, to hide and to feed. Um, you got to have good water quality where you're putting them into. Um, obviously, you put them in an area with, with this is going to have a DO crash or an area that's that's polluted or has a harmful algal bloom. All these sorts of things. You, um, it's not effective if you put it in areas that aren't conducive to their survivability. So, those two things um, are are most important. So, the fish can recruit into the base systems, but there has to be a void for them to recruit. Um, so if the, if the base system is already at capacity, it's already at the carrying capacity that it can support, then obviously those fingerlings won't survive. But, uh, we had to answer that question specific to red drum. Um, mm-hmm. that was one of the things that was, uh, charged, uh, to the department back when I was with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department was to kind of figure out how many of these red drum that you are releasing are, are surviving. And so, um, through DNA tracking, they're able to find hatchery released fish in, in, in the base. Mm-hmm. And it varied, depended upon year and depended upon base system. Some years it's, it seems negligible. Uh, and then other years it seems like it's a substantial amount of the fish that are in there. Uh, close to 20% in some years. And again, oh, wow. some years it could be less than 1%. It just depends on um, all those factors that, that we had just discussed. But your second question, can you create a trophy fishery? Um, you absolutely can. It's certainly done in inland fisheries and in, right. in, in, uh, smaller bodies of water and confined systems. But um we haven't done that yet in Texas, and I don't think that there are plans to to do it through selection of of certain fish through the hatchery. However, uh, you might want to talk. We can maybe talk about this later. But through uh, more aggressive conservation measures, you can ensure that more of those bigger fish remain in the base system. Thereby, they have more opportunities to pass on their genetic traits to future generations. So right. you could enhance the trophy fishery in that manner. Mm-hmm. But you could also do it through selective breeding. I just don't see the department in Texas, Texas Parks and Wildlife, at least taking that step because out of fear, probably of mm-hmm. uh, um, selecting for specific traits and and influencing the the wild genome that's out there in the base system yeah uh, being here in louisiana we uh we're not necessarily known for having the biggest speckled trout uh kind of like y'all have over there so that's kind of where i was headed with that was um maybe here in louisiana we could create a hatchery that could um maybe lead into a larger size speckled trout population yeah, and I think well, I think I think some of Louisiana's first hatchery efforts are going to be on red drum. I mean, I think there's a mm-hmm. there's an effort in that regard, right? But sure, you could you could grow you could you could you could grow fish that would get uh, to trophy size, but you gotta you gotta keep from re- removing them from the from the water. I mean, right? <laughs> <laughs> you you could put out a fish that's capable of reaching thirty inches, but when you harvest them at thirteen. It's, it's kind of hard for them to get there. Oh man, we didn't. Not twelve. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, so there are major differences that you well that we as anglers can see in size of fish um, compared to let's just say Texas and Louisiana. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest things that make that difference? What like why do you think 
you see so much bigger trout in Texas versus Louisiana. Do you think it's strictly because of limits or estuary? Uh, it's all of that. It's, yeah. it's, it's how you prosecute the fishery, certainly. I mean, you leave more fish uh, in the water and more opportunities to get to that size class. They can get there can, assuming that they have uh, the, the food availability um, and, you know, the prey sources to, to get to that size as well. But you, um, if you don't ever let a large uh, portion of your fish get to that trophy class to begin with, you'll never, you'll, you'll never make it. So you've got to, you've got to allow a substantial amount of fish to get past 20 inches so that you can have a few over 25 or over 28 or, you know, maybe even 30. Um, and then, you know, some of our base systems in Texas are, uh, they're not void of predators, but they have a lot fewer predators than, than other base systems. So I don't want to speak mm-hmm. to Louisiana on that, but I know specific to Texas, some of our base systems, uh, you know, the trout, there's nothing out there that are eating a bunch of trout. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of dolphin or, uh, the base system's not loaded with alligator gar or other stuff that might want to eat a, eat a big trout. And right. so, uh, you know, that, that works in our favor here in Texas in a, in a couple of our base systems, but, you know, we've got big trout in, in, in most of our bays, uh, as well, but we're working to try to increase, increase that number mm-hmm. and, and make the fishery, uh, a little more resilient, you know, in, in the face of potential, uh, future freezes and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, as far as estuary, what, what do you think makes ours so different compared to like Texas? Do you think it's just the, the D- Mississippi River Delta? Yeah, um, y'all got the Delta. Y'all got fewer bulkheads. Y'all have more freshwater uh, going into into your uh, into into your estuary or you know, mm-hmm. your equivalent of bay systems. Y'all just you've got much uh, much more rich environment for the early stages of of those fish. And so, I mean, our coast is, you know, one ship channel next to the other and Hmm. bulkheaded, you know, down miles of coastline. And, um, it's just different. We're, we're, we've destroyed a lot of our marsh, Mm -hmm. um, that, that we, we rely upon and y'all still, although you're losing some, y'all still have a substantial amount. Yeah. I think that's the primary differences, uh, but certainly, you, you know, you any state could adapt their management practices to to suit whatever the fishery wanted. Where the anglers are demanding a certain type of fish or size class of fish or age structure of fish, the you you could produce that in your state. Just yeah, it it would take. Uh, a different uh, approach towards managing the fisheries than likely is being taken now. Yeah. Hmm. Do you, do you think that Louisiana's uh, limits, we did just have a change here a few months ago. Do you think that it's still um, too giving to help this, uh, this estuary and this speckled trout population uh, get to where it could be? So I don't, um, I don't know. Helpful. Yeah. I would probably be speaking out of turn if I said, if it was enough or, or too much. Or, um, mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't know what they're, I didn't follow it close enough as to what their target uh, benefit to the fishery was and, mm-hmm. and what these changes would get them. And in, in, in light of that, um, I mean, every Louisiana is known for being able to catch a lot of fish, a lot of fish quickly. Right. And, um, you know, just basically being able to load up with a bunch of meat for, for fish fry. It's, it's a place where people go for that, for that meat haul. Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the longer you just hammer on those smaller fish and been doing that in Louisiana for more than decades, yeah. <laughs> centuries, uh, the, the longer it's probably going to take to, if, if, if the goal is to build a trophy trout fishery, then mm-hmm. it's, it's going to take quite a, quite a long time to get there. But just because you've been selecting towards these smaller fish for so long. 
Right. Um, but again, you could do it if, if, if the state wanted to do it, but you know, there's something to be said about being able to go and, and, and catch a bunch of fish as long as it's not, as long as it's, uh, within reason. And, and the state says that you're, you're sustainably harvesting that resource. Um, mm-hmm. but there's also something to be said about creating a big trout fishery and the value that that has to, to, uh, local economics and the pursuit of those pursuit of those big fish. So which way is the right way? I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. but I, I've spent my adult life, uh, either in the hatchery, um, in Virginia or here in Texas, um, trying to work towards making the resource better than, than it was when I, when I started. So I'm always, I always lean towards being more conservative rather than more liberal. Absolutely. So. Um, working in the hatchery, you said y'all deal with flounder too. Um, what have been some of the biggest benefits you've seen of hatching flounder? Have Have you noticed any major benefits from that? As far as being able to see uh, trackable results in our base systems, we we don't know yet haven't mm-hmm. seen the benefits of it just because, well, uh, a couple of reasons. One is we haven't been doing it that long okay. in, in Texas. Uh, it's been, gosh, I want to say the first fingerlings we released were in 2009. Uh, so about 15 years um, we've been doing that. And, and, but we, the most more important point is you don't release that many flounder don't provide you with a whole lot of eggs to work with. Uh, so, um, when you're, when you're growing up flounder larvae, which is a long and kind of a complicated process, they go through a metamorphosis at about a month and a half to two months old, the right eye migrates over to the left side of their body and they go from a fish that swims kind of like a normal fish to a fish that lays flat and swims like we, like a flatfish. Mm-hmm. That's stressful. And you lose a lot of flounder during that transition of the larvae culture process. So it's very intensive. It takes a long time and you don't get as many eggs to work with. So the end result is they're not releasing as many fish, say like we do with red drum or spotted sea trout. Mm-hmm. Uh, they release about a hundred thousand to 300,000 every year. Whereas the red drum, like I said, doing about 25 million of those every year. So um, it may be a while before we're able to see the effectiveness of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say this, that this is anecdotal, but w- some of the fingerlings we released here in Texas, kind of close to home in a little area, uh, called chocolate Bayou, um, got to know the flounder fishermen in that area. And I told them about the, the, the release that we did. And a lot of times with hatchery flounder, you know, when they're, going through their larvae culture process and even in their grow out phase to get them to about two inches, uh, they don't fully pigmentate. So they're, they could be piebald, they could be white and Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes they don't develop any pigment at all yet. And so they're all, they're almost, you can see through them basically. Oh, wow. So anyhow, told this guy, we released a bunch of fish and chocolate bayou and halls bayou specifically. And I said, be on the lookout for these, fish you'll see a bunch of them and um about six months later he reports back and says he saw a ton of little baby flounder and the size that he was showing me with his fingers i was like those those could be hatchery fish and some of them were piebald so i was Mm -hmm. like he may have come across some of our some of our fish because he was reporting directly from the spot from the immediate area where we had to release them so Mm -hmm. um once flounder go through metamorphosis, they're very hardy. Um, they can tolerate freezing temperatures. They can tolerate water temperatures in the upper 90s degrees Fahrenheit. Um, think about it. They live on the bottom of the, the bay, so they can tolerate uh, near zero dissolved oxygen levels. So they're, they're kind of hard to kill. So they mm-hmm. make, they make a great fish for, or stock enhancement because you, 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 uh, you know that once you put them out in the wild, that their survivability is going to be very high. So, 
they're, mm-hmm. they're attractive in, in that manner, but it's a lot of work. takes a lot of time and resources for, uh, somebody to, to grow a fingerling out and, and then release it out into the bay. So kind of the more effective strategy is protecting the spawners, mm-hmm. uh, the wild spawners. And that's, that's when these closures come into play when you have those seasonal closures to let those females and males get offshore to, to go spawn and, and do their thing rather right. than just get, you know, um, I don't know how it is for y'all, but here in Texas, all our base systems dump through these narrow channels, these mm-hmm. passes that go out to the Gulf. So all these flounder just line up in this bottleneck to where it's just real easy to hook and line or, or gig them. And right. so it's just, uh, it was just a, a free for all at the most important time of their life stage to get off shore and, and spawn. And we're just removing them from the fishery. So yeah. those closures are effective I, and they make a lot of sense from a, from, from a, um, spawning standpoint to get as many fish out there offshore. Yeah. Yeah. Louisiana just, uh, put that, that closure in place year before last, I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, I was super excited to see it. Yeah. So y'all start on the, I think October 15th. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So that's, think about that. Y'all got, we have October 15th to November 15th. And then Texas is November through December 15th. And then Alabama is November all, all the month of November. So we've got three Gulf States protecting this spawning stock. These fish spawn off in, in, in the Gulf. So they're, you know, think about it. You could have larval transport from one state to the next potentially. Mm-hmm. So we're all collectively trying to do something to help that Gulf stock and help it bounce back. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know, uh, you just kind of explain why, why that closure is so important. Uh, like what, what flounder are doing there? I'm like, sorry. Uh, oh, explain it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, flounder, uh, spawn in, in near shore or offshore waters. They, they, they spawn in the Gulf and, you know, they're going pretty deep, like, you know, past 90 feet depth to, to do their spawning. So they do that. They've evolved to, to do that. The water temperatures in the Gulf are very stable and, uh, flounder like it cold. They're a cold water, uh, species. So they like to be in those stable, uh, cold Gulf water. So if we have an extremely warm winter and our water temperatures in the Gulf don't, don't get to 70, really 68 Fahrenheit is ideal. Mm-hmm. But if they get like 73 or higher, then that, that really affects the survivability of the flounder eggs and, and the larvae. So anyhow, the flounder uh, migrate offshore to spawn and their eggs will hatch offshore after about seven days. And, um, then the larvae are carried in by the tides and currents and winds. And when flounder are coming back into the base systems, they're going through that or have just recently gone through that metamorphosis process. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're a month to two months old when they, when they're getting in, into the, back into the estuary. And, um, then they'll, they'll grow up in the estuary. And then as you know, males will move offshore a little bit sooner than females. But after into her second year, that female is producing eggs and mm-hmm. will will start her annual migration uh, to go offshore and to spawn and then come back every year, go offshore to spawn and then come back. Not all of them leave and obviously not all of them come back, but the large majority of the population, that's that's that action that takes place. And so these closures help protect those fish while they're migrating to their offshore spawning grounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've, uh, we've noticed an uptick in flounder here, um, in Louisiana as I would say probably the past two years or so we've noticed, uh, a steady increase in the population. Um, too early to say it's because of the, the closing of that, that spawning travel period. Um, you think it's just because uh, we've had some colder winters? I would go back and look at the uh, yeah average winter winter temperatures um, in the in the year to two previous to experiencing a, the good fishery, and and you can kind of track it that way. You could also look if you if you're able to get your with um, you know the fisheries departments if they're sampling. So if you're able to look at their um, 
their bay sampling or estuary sampling, if they're doing bag scenes or, or any sorts of trawls, if you're able to get that data from them mm-hmm. and track the, um, the catch effort, the catch per unit effort for flounder, a lot of times you can, you can correlate that specific to previous cold winters. Mm-hmm. So if you're seeing a bunch of small fish show up in your bag saying this spring, go back and look at last winter's uh, water temperature data. More than likely it have been, it have been spot on for flounder recruitment. When that water temperature data is showing a spike, you'll know that the next spring you'll have poor recruitment of flounder. Poor recruitment. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, just a weird flounder thing. I had in my head, a uh, friend of mine, he was fishing probably early January and, uh, he said he caught a few flounder and uh it was full of eggs. And I mean this was down in Grand Isle, so probably too early for them to be coming back offshore, I would yeah. think. Yeah, she probably uh was just about to spawn and she probably wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was just stuck there. And again, they don't they don't all leave. I mean, we think about some of our ship channels that we have now. I mean, some of ours in Texas are you know, they're a lot of them are forty feet, some of gone to 56 feet um and we've had some um areas where the currents have moved so fast it's actually um increased the depths of those channels so we have some really deep channels that these fish can hang out in and and i'm of the belief that you know a lot of them hang out in those channels and they're just spawning a lot closer to shore than than they normally would be they normally would be seeking depths having to go offshore Mm -hmm. to seek some of those depths that they can now find in these channels that we've dredged. Interesting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite fish that, that you manage? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's still flounder. Flounder. Yeah. Just, and that was, and that was because when I started at the hatchery, um, you know, we already had the cookbook for red drum. Mm -hmm. We, we knew how to grow trout. Um, do red drum in your sleep. You can almost do trout in your sleep, but you got to stay awake because they'll, they'll eat each other if you're not too careful. But flounder, um, you know, that was, uh, trial by era and, and then learning from, learning from others that were pioneers in the field of, uh, flounder aquaculture. So that was, that's my favorite just because I got to be on the, ground floor when that program started here in texas Mm -hmm. and it's just a it's a extremely frustrating but also rewarding fish to work with it's very hands-on because you're you're your hands you're you're spawning these by hand i mean you're we we do um strip spawns is what we call it basically like that fish y'all saw full of eggs or your friend saw full of eggs at grand isle um we'd have fish like that in our brood stock and and get them all the way up to the point to where they're about to spawn and then we pull them out and squeeze the eggs out of them and then grab Mm -hmm. the males that are flowing that we know that have milt or or sperm it's called milt and we would you know squeeze the milt out of those and then you're making little test tube babies um and so it's very interactive very hands-on and um, Mm -hmm. fun fun fish to, to work with so yeah that's my favorite now, I assume y'all are just regulating uh, these water temps, fluctuating them, trying to, uh, I, I guess you'll bring them down to a certain temp to yeah. try to try to duplicate its spawning time. Exactly. We'll, we'll, um, yeah, for, so for the brood stock, you're putting them through um, different daylight hours and different water temperatures correlating with those daylight hours to, to simulate the seasons of the year. Mm-hmm. And then, with uh you know so you get them thinking that they're supposed to spawn or that it's their time of the year to spawn and then um unfortunately flounder just don't like to spawn in in the in the tanks naturally and we're 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 missing something we they haven't figured out exactly what i think it may be the depth issue Mm. um but the spawns that we get naturally from flounder and the broodstock tanks just aren't, aren't great. And uh, they're very inconsistent. So that's why we do the strip spawning. 
But yeah, we, we simulate the seasons of the year to make them think there's a time to spawn. Then we'll pull them out and then we'll spawn them. And then the same for the eggs. We have to have uh, the temperatures dialed in to simulate mm-hmm. those off stable offshore water temperatures. Uh, you skew it too far one way or the other. Uh, the fish become stressed and then that ends up ultimately that can skew the, the population to be more towards, uh, males rather than females. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easier to be a male than it is to be a female. It takes more energy to be a female. So if you stress somebody out, they're just going to, okay, I'm going to be a male cause I can't handle, <laughs> I don't have enough reserves to be a female. Um, so very, very, um, stable controlled temperatures for the eggs and and the larvae. And then after they go through metamorphosis, then it's, it's game on and you can throw whatever you want to at at them and they'll most likely survive. Hmm. You said you feel like y'all are missing something uh, in these tanks and you think it uh, might be water depth. You think that's water pressure that, that they can tell? I think so. Yeah. Just a, just spec speculation, but, um, you know, we, because we're getting some eggs, something's happening. We're, we're making some of them at least think at times that it's time, that it's their time to spawn. Um, and so it's got, it's something, something's missing. I mean, it, that may not be it. It may just be that they're stressed or there's too many in the tank or not enough in the tank. I mean, who knows, but think about where they're spawning offshore. It's not at three feet depth in, in right. a tank. It's, you know, like I said, sometimes 90 feet or even greater depths. So, yeah, I, I personally believe that pressure has something to do with it. Yeah, I could see that, especially if, they, if that's what they're used to for spawning situations. Yeah. Surely they can internally tell that, that pressure difference between depths. Yeah. Uh, kind of change the subject up a little, little bit here. Um, here in Louisiana, we're dealing with a current situation of uh, men hating boats. Um, yeah, y'all got the pogey fleet. Yeah. What, what, what's your take on that whole situation? Yeah, I think, I think what, uh, CCA Louisiana and, and, um, Teddy Roosevelt, um, and, you know, I don't know what other groups are, are involved. I just know there's, there's a number of groups involved. I think them advocating for a one mile buffer should be, that should be another Tuesday. That would be another Tuesday in Texas, at least. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I think I know why it's such a big deal. Um, they, they, uh, they're well connected and have a lot of, uh, a lot of pull within the mm-hmm. policymakers in that state. But, um, it, it doesn't seem unreasonable to establish a buffer that is going to, uh, help save some of these fisheries that are being negatively impacted by, by their fishing activity. Um, all the other States have a, have one for a reason. And, um, yeah, I, I hope that they're able to get that through. I think, when are they looking, uh, sometime in March, I think looking at their yeah, next they, meeting. Yeah. They just had a meeting, um, last week. Um, it got pushed back to next month uh, yeah. for a decision, which I yeah. think there was some, uh, commission members that weren't present and they wanted all commission members present there to okay. have a fair talk and evaluation about it. Well, that's understandable. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But yeah, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think that what, what, like I said earlier, what, what, what you all are advocating for with, with a buffer is, uh, seems reasonable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at just the images in, in that, that, have shown up online are pretty stark. I mean, it's, it's, it's eye opening when you, when you just see the, the train of dead fish that are being carried out by the currents that, that, that a result of this fishing activity. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's alarming, but well, I want to say, but, but in addition to that, I, I think, I think you're, you're, your anglers and the folks that are advocating for this buffer or other conservation measures are to, they're going to be commended for not laying off on, on this issue. And I mm-hmm. would encourage you guys to, to, 
to keep it up because you're going to, you're going to empower change here, uh, eventually. And so, um, I was, I was kind of proud of the recreational fishing community of Louisiana for doing all that they've done up, up to this point. I think everybody's had enough and they're putting their foot down on this issue. And I would just encourage y'all not to give up and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a major issue. Um, like you, you mentioned the pictures, it's, it's eye opening seeing all those pictures of the devastation they're causing the bycatch and the torn nets. Um, you see the, what comes out of the torn nets. You don't even get to see the bycatch, you know? So. Right. Right. It's, uh, bad situation hopefully that does get uh handled um really hoping we get some redfish regulation changes um i know our wildlife and fishery um have done studies to show that they are being overfished um is that do y'all see anything similar to that in texas uh with redfish no um, i mean we our our population's pretty stable we Mm -hmm. were we were worried about there's some anglers. I don't want to say we, but collectively, some recreational anglers were worried about um, the impact of our redfish fishery uh, when our trout limits were reduced. And, um, we had temporary trout regulations in place after the 2021 freeze, mm-hmm. um, where we reduced the limit from five to three. And so, um, guides not just guides, but recreational anglers and, and fishing guides, um, started, uh, targeting red drum more than, or in addition to, uh, their three trout that they were allowed to mm-hmm. keep. So there was some worry about the numbers in some base systems. Um, uh, but populations are stable because we, we have a really robust offshore broodstock population. And so we're able to keep feeding larvae into the base systems. I think the issue now is becoming not so much overall abundance, but localized depletion in, in certain areas that are getting fished hard for, for red drum. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. We're lucky enough. Like I said, we have the hatchery program. Um, it does 10 to 15 million red drum every year. We've got a good offshore spawning population. We just have to make sure that we're not depleting uh, specific areas more rapidly than they can be replenished. Right. Um, so overall, we're I think in Texas we're we're in decent shape. Mm-hmm. It when a group of biologists like the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fishery when they do a study and show that uh, a certain species is being overharvested. Um, do you think a lot of people don't think that like rod and reel can, can cause a depletion of a species? Do you think like collectively as a group of anglers that rod and reel can hurt a population of a species such as redfish? I wouldn't say such as redfish, but I would say they absolutely can uh, affect the population of other fish. Any, I mean, any, any fish, if you, you have enough hooks in the water and you're removing those fish at a rate faster than they can reproduce. Mm -hmm. And you absolutely can, especially fish that are, that are long lived. If it takes, or if it takes a long time for that fish to, to get to a a spawning size, right. You you know, the the replacement period is, is longer. So yes, you can hear that a lot. And, um, we, I don't know why, but as recreational anglers, we often think of ourselves as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are a mighty a group of people collectively, and our numbers are growing. Um, we've seen in Texas, we've seen a substantial increase in uh, the number of guide licenses, which is reflective of the increased interest mm-hmm. in you know, engaging in the fishery. Uh, we've seen increased license sales. I think about 200,000 saltwater license sales in the last 10 years have gone up 200,000 in Texas. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then you look at population projections, 
specific to Texas. We're looking at uh, 30, we're at, we just crossed 30 million. They're looking at by 2036, 35 million people. Wow. And by 2050, potentially as many as 50 million people in Texas. So you have to think about that moving forward and kind of start planning for that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so hopefully, hopefully all states along the Gulf Coast that are seeing these sort of projections are, are, are doing that. Right. On, on the flip side of that, um, there, there's some amazing uh, initiatives out there like release over 20 uh, promoting uh, things like uh, releasing the bigger fish that are close to that spawning size. Um, so do you think that a collective group of anglers releasing fish can make a difference in, in a species stock? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we saw that here in Texas um, in parks and wildlife data anecdotally shows that because you know like i mentioned we had the freeze in february of 2021 right and in addition to these temporary at that time temporary regulations going into place reducing the limit from five fish to three fish and tightening the slot to a 17 to 23 inch slot um in addition to that we saw anglers pledge to do catch and release or guides pledge to do catch and release trips only so some anglers did a month, some did six months, some did the whole year. But mm-hmm. what showed up in parks and wildlife data were decreased landings. And they think, you know, during their krill surveys and they, they saw anglers or, or anglers expressed that they had this increased interest in doing catch and release. So anglers were voluntarily keeping fewer fish and that was mm-hmm. reflected in their, their, the krill data that parks and wildlife uh, obtains from the boat ramp surveys. So, um, yeah, it, it, it can help and it, and it can show up in, in the data. And a lot of people are like, Oh, trout don't survive. You know, you kill a trout if you release it. Right. I mean, you can, you, but you don't have to. I mean, handling has a lot to do with their survivability. Absolutely. And so there's there's a uh, we have a website releasesense.org. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's a partnership with Heart Research Institute and Corpus Christi and Shimano and then CCA. And on there uh, are links to studies that show the effectiveness of catch and release, and then also some. Uh, safe handling practices on how to properly catch and release your fish. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're not a catch and release organization by any means, but we, we just want to be able to put that information out there for the public to consume so that we can, we can kind of start self-regulating ourselves as a recreational fishing community and not be totally reliant upon our fishery managers to, to, to do the, to do what we think needs to be done to, 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 uh, put the fishery on a, on the right right path. That's amazing that, uh, a recreational angler can just make a difference, you know, as a collective group. Um, I've always believed that it's awesome that data can back that up. Um, whole reason I, I started this podcast was just to try to get good information out there to encourage other people. So that's, that's pretty amazing that data can back that up, that we can make a difference. Yeah. Well, and you're seeing, it is amazing. And you're seeing, you're seeing a shift. I mean, we're experienced, we're in the shift right now mm-hmm. of, of, of our uh, recreational fishing community. I, I think, um, and it's not that people don't want to eat fish. We, I, I want to eat fish. I want to catch Absolutely. fresh fish, but um, I, I think, uh, we're in this period where the the days of the huge meat halls are 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 ending, um, and we we have a little more respect for our fishery, and and more importantly, we want to leave it better than than we inherited it. Um, yep. I mean, I want my grandkids to experience what I never got to experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to experience what three generations ago experienced. And so if, if that's a collective desire of all of us, then we got to start planning for that now. 
And as a group, we can make a difference. Yep. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned you wanted to be what three generations are. Um, good friend of mine, Ty Hibbs, um, shared with me the uh, shifting baseline theory. Yeah. Uh, and it explains exactly like, I mean, today what we might think is great was a drop in a bucket compared to what it was three generations ago. So yeah, if we can make a difference in my, my daughter or my grandkids later on can experience what it was generations ago, that, that would just be amazing. You know, that we can make that difference starting today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. T- today's, today's celebration would have been yesterday's cry. I mean, our forefathers would have, would be so saddened at where our fisheries are now. Yeah compared to uh, uh, what they got to experience. So, um, I, I, again, I think us collectively working towards a common goal of leaving it better is is uh, a noble one, and we're going to keep at it. Yeah. Um, change subject a little bit again here. Um, what, what are some of the biggest challenges that you have seen or are currently seeing as a, a hatchery manager and an advocacy director for CCA Texas? Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges in, in Texas, um, is, is water mm-hmm. and getting enough water to the base systems and get in and having, uh, clean water reaching our, our base systems. Um, we're again, back to the population, anticipated population growth and availability of, um, Fresh water to, to meet those demands is, is, is a, it's a daunting thought. And, and then just making sure that our base systems get enough of that to, to be productive nurseries for our, our fisheries is, is, uh, that's, that's a challenge that I don't know that there's an answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully things swing around for us as far as the inflows are concerned and um, get more consistent rainwater and, and get out of these periods of just extreme drought. Um, that's, that's a big challenge. And then um, clean water getting into the base systems, at least mm-hmm. along the Gulf coast, we've seen, you know, when I was a kid um, growing up here in Texas, that the coastal prairie was, was, uh, was still a prairie in, in, in a lot of areas, but also, the farming practices were um, a lot of it was put up in rice. Mm-hmm. Um, we've since lost um, a substantial, a majority proportion of the rice farming um, have very few left in fact, and we've lost a lot of our coastal prairie to development. So we've transit transitioned these farms and row cropping. And I come from an agricultural community. We have farmland and we have, we have a cattle ranch and uh, lease out our farmland to farmers. So I come at this from a um, landowner knowing what's, what's going on. And um, I am pro ag and pro fisheries mm-hmm. and pro wildlife and all that. But we've, we've changed the way that we farm in, in Texas and, and across the, the, the country to a large degree. And so, you know, a lot of it's more chemical based, and a lot of that stuff ends up in our in our base systems. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a better understanding of how that impacts our, our fisheries. Um, and so to that end, we're, we're supporting CCA supporting work in Baffin Bay. It's called Bring Baffin Back. It's through Heart Research. And they're they're looking at these land use practices, uh, both from an ag standpoint and then also from a residential standpoint. And I'm trying to identify ways that that you can, uh, as a landowner or a homeowner, things you can do, uh, that'll lessen your impacts on, on the fishery. But those are two of the biggest challenges that, that we face in, in Texas, in my mind. Um, and they're bigger picture things. We have a lot of real small specific things like, uh, a desalination plant being proposed here or a channel dredging being proposed over there mm-hmm. or a development of a, uh, subdivision, you know, over yonder that's happening all over the place. Right. Um, but the bigger, bigger things are those other two that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, 
What What is your ultimate uh, goal? Like if you was to leave a legacy by doing what you do, um, working for hatchery management and working for CCA Texas, what is your ultimate uh, impact you would like to leave? More fish, more oysters. More fish, more oysters. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to keep it simple, that would be, that would be it. I just, uh, I want, I want to leave it better than I found it. Yeah. yeah that's, that's a great goal to have. Yeah. Um, if you was to be able to leave people with one uh, bit of advice, what would it be? Don't underestimate your power as uh, the general public to enact the change you want to see in the world and specific mm-hmm. really for fisheries, especially um, going back to the point that it's not just you, it's, you know, it's all of us. We're all, so if we all have a collective voice, we can make a difference case in point, you know, potentially this change that's hopefully going to happen uh, with the buffer there in Louisiana for the pokey fishery. Yeah. That ain't happening because y'all sat quiet. Right. Well, Shane, uh, I think this is going to be a good spot to kind of uh, end it here. Um, feel like we'll have a good opportunity to maybe revisit this at another time and continue on. Certainly, man. Josh, thanks for having me on anytime. Man, it's my honor to have you on. You're a book of knowledge. Um, so it's, it's great to get you on here and share some of that. Happy to do it, brother. Thank you. Well, I appreciate everybody tuning in. Um, Hope y'all learned something from this. I know I've learned a lot. Um, Until next time, y'all take care.